Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Michael Tagayas. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author and the writer of his new middle grade nonfiction book, Into the Blizzard, which was an Amazon Best Book of the Month. Previously, Michael has written many true rescue stories, including A Storm Too Soon, The Finest Hours, which was a New York Times bestseller and was adapted into a Disney film, Falls Overboard, Fatal Forecast, and Ten Hours Until Dawn. He was most recently featured in the Metro West Daily News for finding success in reaching a new, younger audience. Michael, how's it going? We're very excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Thank you, Court. Good to be here. Before we dive into process, which we love to talk about, I would love to first find out a little bit more about you as an author and about your life. My first question being, where are you in the world right now? Today, I am sitting in uh, sunny Florida, 75 degrees, and uh, I split my time between Florida and my home state of Massachusetts. And tell us about your origin story as a writer. So did you always want to be a writer? What was your career trajectory? At this point, you've written, I want to say, at least 30 books. So how did that all come about? Definitely was a late bloomer. Um, Did not go to college to be a writer. I was a a business major and uh, went to college up in Vermont, a state I've really fallen in love with. So I was working in the business community, a manager at a workers' compensation insurance company, and doing a couple of fishing articles on the side and enjoying the process. And as time went on, this would be in my 30s now, um, some of those articles got longer, and then I would branch out and I would do articles about the outdoors in general, not just fishing expanding into history, particularly King Philip's Indian War, which I wrote two books on. And um, it wasn't probably until I was 40 that I began to think of or wishing that I could be become a full-time writer. I still needed that, that day job with two children growing right. up. And um, so it was quite a juggling act, but I'd carve out the time on weekends and weeknights. Moving on to process, we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. In this case, I would love to focus uh, this episode on how to write a nonfiction book. We've interviewed a lot of fiction writers. We haven't really focused uh, on nonfiction, uh, and I would love to use Into the Blizzard as an example. Does that sound good to you? Yes. Yeah, that sounds great. First question, just on a super high level, what's the main difference for you as an author of nonfiction, what's the main difference between a nonfiction author and a, and a fiction author, just in general, in your high-level process? There's more freedom, certainly, uh, with fiction. I've done one one book of fiction that was really more enjoyable because although it follows a series of events during a, a war in the right chronological order, you have the freedom of developing the characters. Whereas for nonfiction. You're spending a lot of time with the characters if they're alive and if they're not alive into the research 
into them to make sure you you get their uh, the gist of who they are and why they did what they did. And before we begin on that process, would you mind if I do my best at uh, reading the description of your book? Sure. All right. In the midst of the blizzard of 1978, the tanker Global Hope floundered on the shoals in Salem Sound off the Massachusetts coast. When the Coast Guard heard the mayday calls, they immediately dispatched a patrol rescue boat. But within an hour, the Coast Guard rescue boat was in as much trouble as the tanker, both paralyzed in unrelenting seas. Enter Captain Frank Quirk, who was compelled to act. Gathering his crew of four, Quirk plunged his 49-foot steel boat, the can-do, into the blizzard. I've also got a couple quotes. Reads like a thriller, suspenseful, and ultimately tragic, effectively capturing the desperate situations of the three Coast Guard boats that were dispatched to aid a supposedly sinking tanker, riveting from Kirkus Reviews. And then I also have readers who love disaster tales and want to feel like they're experiencing them firsthand will find this a compelling, well-sourced read from Booklist. This is all very awesome stuff. Michael, Into the Blizzard launched, I believe, in December. It's now February. How are you feeling? And I happen to know that the book takes place in February, am I right? That's right. The uh, Great Blizzard of 1978 was February 6th and 7th. And Into the Blizzard is an adaptation of the adult version of that story. And that, that was the book you mentioned earlier, 10 Hours Until Dawn. It's one of those overlooked tragedies because the, the Blizzard of 78 seemed to be uh, the headlines focused on the thousands of people trapped in their cars on the highways and the hundreds of homes destroyed. And so this incident at sea got overlooked, which was a a lucky break for me. No one had picked up on it. For example, had that happened today, uh, this sea incident, it'd be the headlines of the Boston Globe. But back then, the the amount of people trapped in their car and the rescue efforts there got, got all the top billing. So I was able to kind of stumble across this story. And what what set this apart in terms of research and writing was I found that there was a audio series of audio tapes recorded on all the radio communications made by boats that were in the storm and it, it you know put my hair standing straight up because in some cases they're in mayday situations some cases it's the last words of men they're they're telling what what they're doing hour by hour to try and survive out there you mentioned you stumbled on the story, but how in general, when you're writing a nonfiction book, where do you usually find your ideas? How do you uh, identify a story you feel uh, would make a good nonfiction book? That's a great question. And it, it comes about in different ways. For example, overboard, a gentleman came to one of my presentations that I give at, at libraries and he, he waited till everybody left. Then he said, I've got a story for you. And, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes because I hear that all the time. And usually it's a good magazine article, never could sustain a book. But he had quite a story. I immediately set up a time to meet with him. Um, You kind of tell right off the bat, is there enough twists and turns? Does the survival story last a certain period of time long enough to keep a book turning? And the rescuers as well, was the rescue difficult? If it was a run-of-a-mill rescue, I wouldn't write about it. Um, but this was an exceptional rescue for overboard, and it, it became the Coast Guard search and rescue case of the year. You know, I didn't answer the second part, um, but some of the other ways, uh, for example, the finest hours, I came across that in a Coast Guard casualty report when I was looking up to try and find the files for overboard. 
And I said, whoa, what's this? This happened right off Cape Cod, and I'm from Massachusetts. I should know about this. And I knew nothing about it. So the finest hours was a 1952 rescue. So had I not been researching overboard, I wouldn't have stumbled across the finest hours. And tell us, why does survival stories specifically kind of call out to you? I, I love interviewing those people who survive where 99% of us could not. I love to dig in of how they did it, how they kept from uh, collapsing under that, that pressure of feeling overwhelmed. So the, I, I like to say the research is, a, is really a joy because the research for these stories, you're just letting the tape recorder run while you're sitting down with these people in person. And then the hard part comes later when you've got all these, back then it was old-fashioned tapes, tapes of the people talking, uh, both the rescuers and the survivors. How do you put that into a story and keep it fast-paced? I've heard that there's a rising trend of nonfiction tales of heroism and survival. How does that trend fit into what you do? Does it just so happen that survival tales are trending now? And does that affect how what you choose to write about and how? Uh, it has not. I think you're right that it seems to be a, a trend. But um, I have pretty strict standards in my mind. I've never written them out or anything. But I can normally tell by either reading a summary of what happened or just talking to someone who was involved. I can usually tell within five minutes, is this enough for a book? I've read too many books of this kind where they stretch the story out. It could have been told in two chapters and it's stretched out over 30. So I, I like the one that there's a, a surprise in every chapter and these are lengthy survival stories. And as we move into process, when you're ready, when you choose your idea, you're like, I'm going to write this book. Obviously, you mm -hmm. want to get that book published. How do you pitch your idea? I imagine as a New York Times bestselling author, you probably already have an agent, maybe even an editor that you work with. How do you uh, approach them and say, I want to make this book? Well, in the, in the early days, I did not have an agent, um, but finally secured a, a good one. And there's agents and then there's agents who aren't very good. And, <laughs> and I've, I've had them both. Uh, so I always alert writers to really be picky and ask a lot of questions. And um, I, I would basically go through, as any writer would, uh, developing an in-depth proposal as if it was aimed at the publisher, but the agent's going to be the one that you've got to clear the first hurdle. And tell us about that nonfiction proposal. So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about query letters uh, for fiction books, mm -hmm. but I happen to know that nonfiction books are, are pitched on a proposal. So it doesn't necessarily mean that either the book is finished and the, the proposal is just that. Tell us what that looks like when you write that up. And, you know, that's a good point you make, that uh, that's, that's an advantage of nonfiction. Um, earlier I said a disadvantage was a little bit less creativity, but the advantage is you don't have to have the whole book done to secure a contract. But my proposals are usually about, I'd say, five to seven pages in length, where I start off giving the overall concept of the story. And then I give a little bit about myself or what I've what I've done in terms of the research. And then the bulk of it is is telling the story in say three pages. Can you can you summarize it in three pages with enough detail to to whet the editor's appetite to want to read the first chapter or two? And then the first chapter or two really needs to be strong because 
you're not going to get a second chance. They're going to say yes or no based on those. So when I write, my mantra is always make it fast paced and make that first chapter really strong to hook, hook the reader, knowing I've got to get by the editor first to get the contract. Would you say there's a correlation between the proposals that you've worked on that have gotten uh, picked up by an editor, so to speak, as opposed to those that maybe haven't? Um, is there a secret to like a really good proposal? I, you know, I think the right length. So again, that five to seven pages seems to work for me. Too long, you may you, you may uh, take up too much of the editor's time because they probably are looking through a whole bunch of proposals on a particular day. And um, catching their attention right off the bat about, one, what makes this book special, but two would be what are similar books. So I'll do both. I'll say, here's a bunch of similar books, but here's why this book is special. So for example, Into the Blizzard, and again, the adult version, 10 Hours Until Dawn, there is no book about the great blizzard of 78, of what happened at sea that day. And there's very few books based on radio transcripts that you know exactly what's happening on board these vessels every single minute. Um, there, so there's very little speculation in this book. Whereas, say, uh, Sebastian Younger's A Perfect Storm, he did a great job um, speculating about what happened to the Andrea Gale. I didn't have that problem, and I quote directly from what they were saying on the radio throughout the book. As far as the pitch that an agent then sends to an editor. Is that usually the case? Does an agent usually take your proposal and then submit that to an editor? Uh, or how do those differ? They, they take my proposal. They might make a couple uh, suggestions to improve it. And uh, then they'll, they'll, exactly, they'll run with that to the editor. They'll ask to read the first two uh, chapters. And they, again, they may make an improvement or two. The better agents always always do. And um, then they're going to run that by the various publishing houses that they work with. And as far as the actual manuscript, you know, where it's at, when you get to that point, obviously, we just talked about how you don't need to have that manuscript finished. Do you ever in a more worked out form? Or do you always wait because you want to make sure that you're actually going to get the book published? You know, I've done it both ways. For example, right now I'm, I'm writing a book about both the outdoors and my relationship with my father. So it's this tale about growing up and it's going to be titled The Waters Between Us because we had such different personalities and then a tragedy brought us together. But with that book where there was so much personal information and it wasn't like a survival at sea book, I felt I better write just about the whole darn thing before trying to get it published. So I, I did, and, and I'm actually finishing it up now. I'm on the last couple of chapters, and that will be uh, released in um, 2021. But I felt like on that book, I, I needed to let the, the editor see where it's going so they could make a decision. Whereas 10 Hours Until Dawn and Into the Blizzard, they could see through my outline that I attached with the proposal of where this story goes. And it's not one of these stories that has a, a neat and happy ending. Um, some people make it who are trapped at sea and some don't. You mentioned the outline. Once the editor decides to work with you and get the, start to get that book published, tell us about the outline, what those, the first stages are 
What does it look like? How many pages is it? But you know what's interesting is the the initial outline, which might be pretty short of say just a couple pages, usually goes out the window as I start writing future chapters. The book takes on a life of its own and I start accumulating information and I keep them in old fashioned manila files. So I've got, for example, chapter three, there may be five different files I have for chapter three of what I want to get into that chapter. And then chapter four is the same thing. So at the end of the day, I've got a box filled with files and each one is filled with all sorts of notes, ideas, photocopies of say newspaper clippings or research. And um, the book then takes on a life of its own. It won't deviate too, too far from the outline. If it does, I would alert the the editor. But um, in my experience, I never look at that outline ever again once I secure the contract. When someone writes a fiction book, they write the full manuscript and then they send uh, you know, their query letter. By the time yes. it gets to the editor, that book is already written. So to restructure it in the outline phase is quite difficult. At this point, since you're starting almost from the beginning, is this a benefit? Uh, are editors able to get more involved in the actual outline process to make sure that it kind of comes out in, a, in the way they want? Yes, they, they have been able to stress a few areas where they might want me to delve into deeper. For example, on this Waters Between Us book that'll be out next year that the editors already told me, said, I'd like to, you to develop that uh, section towards the end where you buy this cabin and you, you try to live in the woods, uh, stretch that out a little more. That's pretty intriguing. So he alerted me to that up front that he thought, you know, that part might be a little short according to my, my outline. So yeah, I think they, they have a little more freedom there and probably better for the author too. You're not with, uh, again, with fiction, you're not, you know, reworking a wheel if they say, love your writing, but boy, this story needs a ton of work. <laughs> Tell us about the research. I'm assuming there's a lot of research that goes into the initial idea and before you kind of submit the proposal. But then I imagine there's also more and more layers of research that happen around the outline stage and then probably throughout. So what does that research look like and, and how do you kind of tackle it all? Uh, um, an example would be uh, for... 10 Hours Until Dawn slash Into the Blizzard, the, the middle reader version, would be digging deeper and deeper with characters who were involved that night. So, for example, the main characters I've contacted, their their families if they're deceased, because who knows more about that particular person than a wife or a husband or a father or son. But then from there, you're branching out to lesser characters, and it's a it's a treasure hunt. You're a detective. They may say, oh, there was somebody involved that night that did such and such, and they can't even remember the name. And now it's up to me to to go back through all the research and try and find that person and then set up an interview. So look, looking back on those books, you know, I probably did 50, 50 interviews, I would say, of key people that were involved either in the Coast Guard or involved with these boats, or, uh, for example, the first person, he was part of the Atlantic strike team to be dropped down on the oil tanker that, that put out the May Day. Uh, you're, you're, and again, that's a, for me, that's a fun part. For other people, they may maybe they dread that, um, but, but I love it. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I just found 
Bob McElvride, for example. I've been looking for this guy all over, and he was in Canada, and I forgot to look in Canada. Uh, so my, my kids used to laugh at me. They'd hear that name, Bob McElvride. I can't do the book without finding him. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, eventually I did. I found him on a, on a Scottish website and found that he was living in Canada and tracked him down there. So there's an obvious comparison to being a detective here, right? Exactly. And, you know, and it's not too much different for the King Philip's War book that that I co-wrote. You're not interviewing live people, but you're on a, a detective hunt to see if you can find eyewitness sources going all the way back to colonial times. And, you know, and you'll one will lead into another that leads into another. And pretty soon you've got or for me, most writers don't do this, but my paper files, you know, can fill up a big moving box. And do you actually ever physically go and meet with people, interview in person? Do you go to the places that maybe where the uh, events unfolded? How important is that to writing the book? I always try and do that. Um, for example, meet with them in person. For example, my book, Fatal Forecast, it's an incredible story how this one commercial fisherman survived in the open Atlantic in this incredible storm after a hundred foot rogue wave capsized his vessel it, it killed his three other crew members but he he was in the atlantic and this was november 22nd so if you can imagine how cold it was and he was in and out of a broken life raft off the charts of survivability the coast guard never dreamed this person could be alive and he was out there for three days so with him being the main character, I not only interviewed him, I stayed at his house for a week um, and really got to know him. And we'd pick up the interview each um, each evening. You know, he would go off to work during the day. I'd start typing up the notes from the prior day, come back in the evening, and we'd pick up the pick up the interview. And it, it did take a full week, and I'm so glad I, I did it in person. It would have been hard for such a main character to do over the phone. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city. While our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, 
Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these. You sound like a kidnapping victim. <laughs> also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at flickeringmyth.com, along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. And how do you choose the actual timeline uh, that you ultimately decide that is going to be in the book? Obviously, you're doing all this research, you're kind of looking at what happened, the circumstances and all that. Is it difficult to kind of pin down like, because you could set it on the one day that it happened, you could set it a couple yes. weeks before, a couple weeks after. How do you make that decision? Every book's a little bit different. I find with these rescue survival at sea books, it's good to start with the beginning of that particular voyage. And then maybe during uh, a future chapter, you can backfill, for example, in Fatal Forecast, the, the main survivor, Ernie Hazard, we start with the beginning of his, his voyage to go out to George's Bank. But a little later in the book, I backfill of why he was an unusual person, why he was so tough. And I write about how when he was just 17 years old, one day he told me, he said, yeah, I got on my bike and I went from Canada to Mexico. And I said, you mean you got on your motorcycle? And he goes, no, my bicycle. I just started riding. <laughs> and I said, who'd you go with? He goes, nobody. I go, what'd you pack? He goes, nothing, just uh, you know, a ground cloth and a sleeping bag. And I was like thinking to myself, no wonder he's such a tough survivor. If he did that right. when he was 17, I'd have to have you know, a, a support van following me. So that that comes, but that comes later in the book to let the character know the main character's background, let the reader know the main character's background. Before we delve more into the actual writing of the book, question that comes to mind: How does a nonfiction book differ than a historical fiction book? Historical fiction: an author is writing about historical characters, but I imagine what they're talking about is mostly made up. And stop me if I'm wrong. And then for a nonfiction book, you're doing the research so that you can almost pinpoint ideally exactly what they were saying. Exactly. That, that's that's a big part of it. Um, that dialogue is either uh, fictional or made up. But the other would be the fictional character you can have all sorts of fun with, whereas a real character, you better get it exactly right or that person is not going to be happy with the end end result. And to me, that's the most important review of a book. Are the people who were there happy with the way it come out? Right. Did you, did you, you know, did you nail it or did you miss? And that's, that's really what drives me and probably pushes me to work a little bit harder is I don't want to let them down. They've already opened their hearts to me. They've given up a lot of time. Um, in some cases, it took some convincing to get them to work with me. The Finest Hours, for example, um, the main hero of that rescue did not want to work with me at first. And luckily, I had already written 10 hours until dawn. So when he turned me down the first time, I sent him that book. And then I called him back again and said, did you read it? And he said, yes. I said, did you like it? He said, yes. And I said, will you work with me? And he said, well, maybe now that I've read <laughs> what you've done. <laughs> so it, it did open some, open some doors. 
So we were talking about the outline phase before, but what's your process for writing the book itself? Do you write and revise once you have all your research and your folders? Do you write one chapter at a time when you first sit down to actually type it out? Or do you write the entire book kind of in one pass and then kind of go back and do another pass? I will do passes, but I, I tend to start in the, you know, the, the proper order. You know, an example of, to answer one of the earlier questions and this one you just asked is, I just wrote a book called Above and Beyond about uh, one of our, our spy plane pilots, a U-2 spy plane pilot who was shot down and killed over Cuba during the missile crisis. And nobody seems to know about that. Everybody knows about Gary Powers and not about this Rudy Anderson who was shot and killed by the Russians. But I thought with that book, rather than starting with the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis, I thought I'd jump right into the action so that readers know this isn't going to be a, a history book. This is going to be a book of action. So I write about a pilot who flew just before him and was shot at by surface-to-air missile, and they missed, and, and how he was able to successfully get out of Cuba and land his aircraft to, to really hook that reader in the beginning. So, I, you know, I think from the get-go with that book, I knew that was how it was going to open because that was so exciting. And, and there was a cover-up, too. The, the military covered up his near shoot-down. They didn't want President Kennedy to know about it. So I said, what a great way to open a book. And that was the, the chapter I started working on first and then went back to the start of the 13 days of the crisis. So again, I'm, most of the research was done at that point, and I have all my little paper files and tape recordings that, that um, I've typed up into transcripts of people I've interviewed. And, you know, and then the writing just kind of flows because in nonfiction, you're, you are mostly following the chronological order of, of the events. You mentioned that Into the Blizzard is uh, the middle grade version of 10 Hours Until Dawn. What is the writing process specifically for getting to that point? Are you first writing 10 Hours Until Dawn and doing the research for that, and then for Into the Blizzard kind of adapting that work? Or are you also doing separate research specifically for Into the Blizzard? Like, How do those two differ? Well, for this, this True Rescue series with Holt, and it's Cristiata Viano Books is the, the imprint, and, and she's my editor, and she's fantastic, and she's had way more experience than I have, but uh, the first question I asked of her when we did the very first book in this series was, how many words do you want me to come in at, Christy? The adult book is, say, 70,000, and I have never done a middle reader before, and she would say between 40,000 and 50,000. So right off the bat, I know I need to do some trimming for the middle reader book. And in terms of the, the research, most of the research has been done through the adult book. Um, there may be a little bit of new research needed, but, but not too much. And, and then here's the tricky part is, okay, so how do you cut 20,000 words without losing the reader? I've had a lot of people say, oh, that's, that's easy. Uh, you, those are easy, those middle reader books. I go, no, not until you do it. They look easy. But if, say, you cut this particular sentence out of the first chapter, but it's referred to in chapter four a little bit later, that incident that is in the sentence you cut out, now the reader doesn't know what you're right. talking about. So even just removing one word can have an impact later on in the book. 
So it is a painstaking process of how to trim it, how to simplify it a little bit for a younger reader, when you need more explanation. If a middle reader, for example, doesn't understand the operation of a Coast Guard patrol boat, um, and there you'd be adding some words um, and some descriptions. So in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, okay, where's my word count going with this? You know, I want to come in and meet that editor's uh, goal without leaving any of the really exciting stuff out and without confusing the reader. And how do you find when kind of converting, so to speak, to a middle grade book, how do you find the balance uh, in the voice of, you know, writing for a middle grade audience, but also you don't want to talk down to the audience either? Yeah, I never talk down to the audience. I do find one technique that's helped is try and shorten the paragraphs a little bit, particularly if one paragraph might take up a whole a whole page. Um, it's going on a little too long for a middle reader, so I'll, I'll shorten those up. And it, it was funny, uh, Christy, the editor, after the first book said, you know, you're a natural at this. I've, you know, worked with many authors on adaptations. And I said, well, you know, it's funny. I said, is I was, I'm writing for myself, the 12-year-old Michael Tagayas, because I was a big reader back then. I was that nerdy kid going to the library, filling up my bike basket with books in the summer. And the books I was reading, believe it or not, were true adventure books. And, that, and that's what I ended up writing. I just wish I had started earlier. I should have known as a big reader and and locked into one type of book. I probably should have gone to uh, have a, a journalism major rather than a business major at college. But I didn't figure it all out until until later, and that was, um, you know, part of the process, I guess. Maybe a good thing because it allowed me to to save some money in the business community because writing can be so tough financially at times. Tell us about the themes in the book. How do your books reconnect kids to the natural world with topics like the outdoors, survival, the sea, etc.? Well, this since the action is taking place outdoors, you're you're learning um, through the writing. With hopefully, without realizing you, the reader, are learning. Uh, an example might be when I write about a boat trapped in the Gulf Stream. People have heard of the Gulf Stream, you know, kind of flows around Florida and it heads north. It's like a moving river in the ocean. But I try to take it a little bit farther and put that reader in the Gulf Stream in a storm. And I explain it's the deadliest place on the planet to be in a storm because you've got the seas running one way, but the wind coming the opposite way. Say the wind is coming out of the northeast and wind running as opposing to current is going to stack up the waves and make them steep. So, for example, in a storm too soon, people would say to me, were the waves really a consistent 80 feet? And I go, exactly. And it's because of the Gulf Stream. I said, we have video on my website, michaeltagayas.com, showing the raft in these 80-foot seas because I knew people would doubt, oh, he's exaggerating. Uh, the waves can't be that big. Maybe a rogue wave, but not consistently. But in the Gulf Stream, they are. And so, again, you know, you're connecting the kid to the, the natural world, but in a way that you're hopefully not doing it in a lecturing way. It's part of the story. As far as writing the book itself, whether it's middle grade or otherwise, how do you balance 
writing dialogue versus description? How do you not get carried away with too much dialogue? How do you know when you need to balance those pockets of description? I am a lover of dialogue. And I can remember one uh, book that Christy and I had a different opinion on the dialogue, and that was A Storm Too Soon. Uh, we ended up meeting in the middle, but she was saying, boy, there's an awful lot of dialogue in this book, way more than some of my others and some of your others, Mike. And I said, yeah, but this is dialogue is coming direct from the three survivors. There, there's nothing of me kind of patching it together. And it's happening right in the midst of life and death situations. So I think we need to leave as much as possible. And I also was able to uh, convince her and the adult version of that book, it has the same title, A Storm Too Soon, that let's write this in the present tense, which is unusual. Um, Almost all books are written in the past tense. But this one, Storm Too Soon and Overboard, was the other one. Both were relatively recent events when I was writing them, and it just felt so raw like it was happening. And I'm so glad I I tried that approach because I get so many letters from both adults and kids. And the theme of the letters, the words are, are almost always the same. They begin by saying, I'm not much of a reader, but I picked this book up and I couldn't put it down. I felt like I was in the storm. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll bet a big part of that is because it was written in the present tense and they're used to books in the past tense. So I'm putting them right in the action, making them feel like a a crew member. And they're probably asking themselves, what would I do in this situation? How would I react? And when does the editor get involved? Obviously, when they want to work with you and you start writing the manuscript, are you sending pieces so that they can start getting involved in or are you finishing that manuscript? and then sending it to them, and then going into the editing phase? They all want it completed at that point. They don't, they don't want to edit in sections. And what I've, I found, for me, the, the biggest help I need is from the, the copy editor, um, who you know corrects the grammar and the proper punctuation and corrects a few periods where maybe I've um, reiterated the, the same uh, fact more than once. The the editors have not made any structural changes to my book, so I've been lucky that way. With the middle reader books, there's a little bit more involvement from the editor just because, you know, I haven't done 30 of those like I have with the adult books. So any suggestions from uh, Christy are, are welcomed because she's been doing it a lot longer uh, than me. And it, you know what, in some respects, the the books for young readers are, are tougher to write, and I'm not sure why, but sometimes I find like, wow, this is taking way longer than I, than I thought. And it might be because of Christie's uh, perfectionism, and, and I welcome that. Um, so that, that's why we worked well together, and that's why we launched the series. She knows that I'm always going to try and uh deliver. And if there is a difference like we had on the dialogue, I was able to talk her into leaving most of it by saying this is coming direct from those men and it's right during the life and death part of the book. Let's leave it. So there was a great give and take working with her. And how many uh, passes do you usually make during the editing phase? When do you know when that book is kind of ready to move on to copy editing or, you know, basically ready to be published? I generally do one last pass myself before sending it 
to the editor. Or uh, sometimes Alison O'Leary, my fiance and a fellow writer, will take a look at it and she'll do some copy editing and, and make a few suggestions. But when it gets to the editor, usually it's uh, two passes before it goes to the copy editor with the middle reader books. Uh, with the adult books, it's uh, usually only been one one pass and goes to the copy editor. And what about choosing the title and the cover? Are those things you're heavily involved in, or does the publishing house usually kind of handle those? I like to say that titles are my forte. <laughs> I just <laughs> I love doing titles because I agonize over them, and I come up with about a hundred. Um, like Fatal Forecast, I just the title just rolls off your tongue, that alliteration. And it truly was a Fatal Forecast. The National Weather Service was uh, sued because of their, their faulty forecast, and they didn't tell the mariners that the buoy wasn't working. Ten hours until dawn, the title came to me because I realized, you know, these audio tapes that I'm using to write the book, and again, that's Into the Blizzard, the middle reader version, are spanning a 10-hour period through the night. So you're, you're, you're trapped in these raging seas at night in the worst blizzard of the century, and it's a 10-hour period, and you're trying to make it to dawn. So I just put that together 10 hours until dawn. Uh, the Finest Hours, that came to me because I was starting to think, if this is the Coast Guard's rated greatest rescue ever, i got to give it a title that says as much. And then finally it hit me. It's the Coast Guard's finest hours, this two-day rescue. So that's what we went with. So I don't think I've ever had an editor change a book title on me. Other authors should expect that to happen. I've been kind of lucky there. Uh, the covers, that's that's definitely something that's done in collaboration with the, the editing team. They might ask me, do you have any photos that would be great for the cover, you know, from that particular incident. And oftentimes you don't because you're in this storm or a life and death experience. But I'll say, well, I can describe it and work with the uh, illustrator. Uh, but every now and then, you know, you get lucky and there is a photo. I did a book called The Rescue of the Bounty. That was the the tall ship bounty used in the Marlon Brando movie, Res uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. And that ship sank in Hurricane Sandy. And believe it or not, a Coastie who was up in a C-130 aircraft going to this ship in a Mayday situation snapped a photo with his iPhone of the ship awash. It's actually sinking. And the, the photo was as clear as day. I could not believe it. And he, he snapped the photo during the daytime, so it wasn't using some infrared camera. And there was never any question that that was going to be the photo on the cover because it shows the ship sinking from this bird's eye view. When the book is published, obviously you promote it. You start on the next book. What do we have to look forward to? You've written 30 bestsellers, I believe, or more. What's next? What can we look out for? Well, as part of the True Rescue series for middle readers, I did something I've never done before, and that's adapt another author's book. Uh, it was a New York Times bestseller about the battleship Indianapolis that sank in the Pacific in World War II, and the, the men had such a horrific experience in this shark-infested waters. So that is coming up in this series, and then So Close to Home, which is the adult title for the book about the U-boat and the family that survives the U-boat attack 
that's going to be renamed for kids, uh, Attacked at Sea. And uh, the co-author and I have completed our uh, manuscript and completed uh, the edits that Christy suggested. So that will be the next book out, uh, Attacked at Sea. And it's and again, the way I was able to get that book published in the first place was saying there is no other book out there that has an American family's fight for survival during World War II here off our coast in America. You know, everything, all the books about World War II are either taking place in Europe or taking place in the Pacific theater, usually involving uh, military. And this is a family of four, a little eight-year-old boy, 11-year-old sister. How do they survive after their, their ship sinks? Are you ready for a couple of bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions? <laughs> that, they always stump me and I have to really pause, but let's fire away. All right. The first one is, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose which restaurant and why? <laughs> to a fast food restaurant. <laughs> now, I'm glad you asked that one because I, I was thinking of that question recently when I was talking with Allison and I said, I would love to sit down with uh, Laura Hillebrand who wrote Sea Biscuit and the, and the more recent World War II book. Um, I know she suffers from an, an illness, and I hope that it doesn't slow her down too much because I really wait on her books. Um, they're just so well-researched, and um, I would love to ask her questions, how she comes across these stories and um, how she brings it to life. And her, her books are are really usually more sizable than the normal books, how, how she sustains that energy than a book that's probably at least a third longer than, than my book. So Laura Hillebrand would be, would be right up there for me. And which restaurant? Which restaurant? One that serves martinis. There you go. That way we'd both be chatting. The next question, what is one piece of advice or learning from your career that you'd like to pass along to those writers who are listening right now? Persistence would be a, a biggie. Um, as I said, the Finest Hours book, he turned me down the first time, the, the main character, Bernie Weber, but I was persistent. The other thing is I wouldn't take too much stock in rejections because on one book that I did, one rejection letter would say, we love the writing, but we don't like the story. And then the very next day, I got a letter that said, great story, but we don't like your writing. And I just ripped them both up, and I said, there's no consistency here. If I saw consistency where they all said, great writing, but we don't like the story, I'd move on to a different book topic. But I eventually got that book published, so I don't put too much stock into rejection letters, knowing that everybody's entitled to their own opinion and don't give up. Um, you, you may have to get it out to 50, 60 different publishers or agents before you find the right match. And it might be that it hit that person on the right day. Now I, I tend to try and target the books to a publisher that really seems interested in that type of story. But when I first started out, it was just get it out as, to as many as possible because, again, you're going to need some luck. Do they have an opening in their schedule? Uh, you may have a masterpiece on your hands and they're turning it down just because they don't have an opening in your schedule. So persistence. The last and most important question, drum roll, please, please <laughs> hand me the envelope. I'm opening it now. The last question is, 
did you have fun today with us? Today was a good day. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're on your toes with you guys. Uh, I'm definitely I'm kind of leaning towards the, uh, the microphone. But yes, it was fun. And, it, it, you know, and, and we got out a few tips that I've wanted to share awesome. with aspiring writers for a long time. And we, we hit those today. Love it. Into the Blizzard is in stores now. If you're listening and you haven't read it, please check it out. And Michael, before you go, did you want to plug anything else or shout out your Twitter or social media handles? You know, I'm on Facebook, so you can find me at Michael J. Tagayas. And um, I try not to uh, be too serious on Facebook. Usually I'll be posting some photos that are uh, uh, put me in a bad light rather than a good light. I've come across too many authors that take themselves way too seriously. So I'll post all sorts of goofy stuff. A lot of them are fishing photos. Uh, the other day, I had an osprey steal the fish I caught right from behind me when I turned around. So there's a, a photo involving that. Uh, so I hope they check that out. And the other place I hope people check out is my website. Again, it's just Michael Tagias, T-O-U-G-I-A-S dot com. And, and there they can see, for example, that video of the life raft in the in the 80-foot waves, they can see the U-2 spy plane pilot, who's now in his uh, late 80s, uh, describing how he was shot at and how his incident was covered up from the president of the United States. So I'd like to post some videos on my website, and then people can peruse the, the books there as well and order them from the website. Well, thank you, Michael. We really appreciate your insights and your time. We had a lot of fun today. So yeah, just thank you so much again. What a great day. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.